Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing your wealth. The show is presented to you by Gastelowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gastelowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gastelowitz and Billy Bombush, and we're talking today about financial and estate planning issues facing women. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Emily Sanders, a CPA and Managing Director at United Capital, and Abby Flaum, an attorney and partner with Cohen, Pollock, Merlin, and Small. I'd like to start off by asking both of you to just tell us a little bit about your practices and, and what you do. Let's start with you, Emily. Good morning. I'm a managing director with United Capital, and we're a national registered investment advisory firm with $19 billion of assets under management all throughout the United States. We do holistic wealth management and financial planning. My passion is to help women uh, gain financial independence and security. And uh, it started when I was very young in high school, growing up in New York, went to University of Pennsylvania. Uh, NYU for my MBA. And then uh, this year, I just graduated from Emory Law School. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And you, Abby, tell us about yourself. Sure. So uh, I'm a partner in the estate group at Cohen, Pollock, Merlin, and Small. Um, Our firm actually just celebrated its 40th anniversary, and it was started as an estate planning firm 40 years ago. Uh, But what inevitably happened is that clients would turn to their estate attorneys say, hey, I really want you to do this real estate transaction. I really want you to do, you know, my closing. I really want you to litigate this for me. And ultimately, we grew as a function of that. And so our firm does pretty much anything a small business owner might need uh, other than divorce. Um, And my area of practice focuses on estate planning. So that means everything from wills and trusts to complex tax planning to probate and estate administration. Okay. Well, our topic today is uh, financial issues facing women. So let's start by asking us, uh, do women face different economic challenges than men face? Emily, what do you think? Absolutely. Women, they live longer than men. They tend to, if they're married, marry men older than themselves. So they may be managing on their own financially for at least 20 years of their life. Um, They also uh, get married later, sometimes uh, many times get divorced. And so they have a unique set of challenges to juggle all their responsibilities as well as a plan for a longer life expectancy. When you say women are, are on their own financially more, do you mean more at the end of life because of a longer life expectancy or at the beginning of life, uh, at the beginning of their working careers because you said they marry later? It could be at any time. Uh, the average age of widowhood is 56. And most people are shocked by that statistic. I am. I am. (laughs) But but there are, um, we, unfortunately, we meet many young widows in their 40s and 50s who may still have young families at home and have to deal with not only the crisis of being a single parent, but then how to manage the finances during a period of transition. Is it still true that uh, women seem to have less uh, to do with the family finances. I know that was true <clears throat> last generation, but I thought that would cha- was changing. It, it is changing. Um, at this point, four out of 10 women that come into our office are the primary breadwinner of the family. And when I started my practice 24 years ago, 
um, there were very few women who were the family breadwinner. So that's much more accepted now. Um, men are more comfortable staying at home and taking care of the children or working as consultants, you know, in the home. But um, women are time starved. So they may not either be interested or have the time to really devote to their fan finances. And also when they're younger, uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but many uh, dads in particular or parents give more financial coaching and tutoring to their sons than to their daughters. So they sort of grow up with, you know, a little bit behind the eight ball on that knowledge. Yeah, along the same lines, uh, when I see clients come into our office uh, that are estates, oftentimes it's a wife who's recently lost her husband. She is both upset because she's just lost someone who she deeply cares about, but also she just feels terrified because in so many relationships, the man is still the person who is the primary financial partner. And when a woman loses her husband, oftentimes she is just so incredibly terrified because she has to start from scratch figuring out what her financial picture looks like. And so that really puts a woman at a disadvantage just to having to start from the beginning. A lot, <clears throat> a lot of it seems to be a lack of knowledge. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, that uh, it, you know, we find that even when um, people come in with uh, a healthy estate that they've inherited, they still have a fear that they're not going to have enough because they don't fully understand what their finances look like. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. it something that's just an educational process? I think it is. I think what I've seen for a lot of clients in the past is that um, oftentimes, like I said, there's usually one partner, not always the man, but very often and traditionally it has been the man who's been the person arranging the finances, directing the estate, and sort of turning to the wife and saying, sign on the dotted line here, and she sort of goes along with the plan. In couples where that is the desired um, effect for the couple, where they want it to be that way, you know, we can help them to arrange things so that if the husband should pass away first, the wife doesn't have to start from zero. But more and more, women don't want the roles to be this way, and they want to have the knowledge. Um, and it's just a matter of educating these women on how things work and that it's good to ask questions and uh, volunteering information with these women that they might be a little bit intimidated to ask, but that you know they could benefit from. Emily, it seems to me that um, what we see sometimes is women are lacking knowledge in two areas. One is investment knowledge. Maybe they don't know how funds are invested or they haven't managed investments before. And two is, for instance, if a husband dies, they may literally not know where the money is or what their source of income is going to be from now on. So it's not just how to invest, it's where am I going to find the money? That's correct. One of the things that we do in our practice through the use of technology and um, information is make sure that, you know, if it is a married couple, that both spouses know exactly where they are and where they stand. And um, there are things called electronic vaults where data can be stored that's password protected. Oftentimes, um, the either surviving spouse or if it's a divorced spouse doesn't even know where to find information and documents. They may be on the computer and password protected. So we encourage spouses to share their passwords with each other, assuming that they're trusting of one another. And, you know, we do like to work with couples that are in a trusting relationship. That definitely helps. But um, to build on what Abby said, 
there's usually a financial, like chief, chief financial officer in the family. And more often than not, it's a man, but we are seeing more and more uh, women who are taking on that role. And it's not just, you know, writing the checks or using automatic bill pay, which women often do. It's actually knowing where the assets are and, you know, where the investments are. But um, many women don't know the financial lingo. And we always say, no question is a dumb question. So women um, sometimes do preface their questions with, this may be a dumb question, but... And so we put them at ease that there there are no dumb questions when it comes to their money. Do you find that a lot of the uh, couples that come to see you, the spouse, the, the, the woman doesn't know what the assets even are, you know, where the assets are located, how much the couple has, how much the uh, couple makes as a family income? Yes. And there are many spouses who sign a tax return and really never review the tax return and don't really know what they're signing. So we help walk them through the major line items of a tax return just to understand how everything comes together. And, um, you know, sometimes it's due to a lack of interest, but other times it goes back to what I said about women being time starved, either, either taking care of, you know, their own careers, children, elderly parents. There's all kinds of caregiving that goes on that is still traditionally done by the woman. So um, it, it's, it can be to people, unlike us who are in the profession, somewhat uh, boring. <laughs> and uh, we find you know, investments and so on very fascinating, but many women just feel it takes up time in their day that they don't have. So we try to also make it fun and interesting, and we use um, behavioral finance techniques to help um, people understand how their like, emotional biases impact the way they make financial decisions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We sort of force the issue when we work with couples that are clients with regard to what the assets are, uh, because we have to remember that estate planning is not just planning for what happens when you pass away. You have an estate during your lifetime. And in order to thoroughly plan for that estate, we need to know what the assets are, how they're titled, approximate values. And so in meeting with all of our clients, uh, we go through a, an asset review with them jointly as a couple in order to address every asset they have, the best way to have it titled, the best way to manage it, both during lifetime and after they pass away. And, you know, for couples who haven't discussed it before, it's a great way to have that introductory conversation about their assets. Do you find that um, the counseling differs if you're talking to a, say, a relatively young couple, 30s or even early 40s, first married, versus a couple where this is maybe a second or a third marriage? And that they've each brought, you know, different assets to the marriage and they each have children that they're planning for. And maybe there's a desire to keep finances separate. Sure, absolutely. Oftentimes, uh, well, well, what we do is we really encourage everyone to be open and honest about everything that's on the table so that we can provide for them in the way that they want. Um, if they're not willing to be open with one another, we can't jointly represent them anyway. Um, but if they are, then yes, it definitely depends on stage of life, first marriage, second marriage. Um, if you're a young couple coming in to plan for your family, typically your biggest concern ap- appropriately is making sure that if you have children, they are cared for both financially and physically if something should happen to you. Uh, If you are entering into a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth marriage, and you have kids from prior marriages, oftentimes you want to make sure that your new spouse is provided for, but you also want to ensure 
that your children from your prior marriages are provided for. You have to keep the interplay of who you're naming as executor and trustee with the who you're naming as beneficiaries in mind because you certainly don't want to create any controversy following your death. And you also want to make sure that you provide for everyone in a way where there's very little subjectivity involved because, of course, what we want to do is provide for everyone without promoting Con- litigation. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to see that. No. Do <laughs> do you, are you finding, either of you, and maybe this is directed more to Emily, uh, couples are, are keeping their, their assets and their finances more separate? Yes. So we are seeing that. And sometimes couples that you know have not even been through a divorce like to have two separate contracts with us so that we have a fiduciary duty to each of them separately. And that's totally fine as long as it's understood and they give permission to share information with each other. Um, is, that a, is that a good or a bad idea? It's whatever works for the couple. You know, some, as a matter of fact, some of the young millennials that we work with, you know, who are in their first marriage, one of their big topics of discussion is, you know, how to handle their bank accounts. Do they still keep his and hers? Do they have a joint one for household expenses? Um, that becomes very important. And so... I think like we work with a couple that um, are about to celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary. They're very much in love and um, they've kept their money separate for the, their entire marriage. Their entire- and maybe that's one reason why they're happier. <laughs> 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 not, saying, not saying that's for everybody, the, the, but particularly in case of inheritance, if one member of the couple has inherited assets, um, it often is wise to just keep that as a premarital asset. All right. Well, so... Assets that you've inherited or been gifted separately, I, mm-hmm. I understand keeping separate, but, but the, uh, the communal assets, the, uh, the money that the family makes as they're a married, while they're a married couple, is keeping that separate a good idea or does that tend to create problems? So in my practice, uh, we run across this when we're doing prenuptial agreements. And I've seen really two main schools of thought with regard to this. There are some couples that truly just want title of everything to control. And in that way, it does keep things very clean. If they decide in the marriage that they're going to create a joint account, that they're going to jointly title a piece of real estate, it is clear cut without an awkward discussion referencing the prenuptial agreement as to if we get divorced, if something should happen, if we pass away, what is going to happen with these assets? There are other people, though, that say, Now, when I marry into this partnership, I don't want to be counting pennies and who paid for what. And I want to make sure that all expenses going forward are really joint and then it's coming from all joint money. And so some people prefer to structure everything in their prenuptial agreement so that everything from, from before the marriage is indeed separate, but everything after the marriage, other than things like inheritances, uh, would be joint. And to Emily's point, it's really just a matter of personal preference. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Millie Bombush from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with Emily Sanders, a CPA and managing director of United Capital, and Abby Flaum, an attorney and partner with Cohen Pollock, Merlin and Small. And we are discussing financial and estate planning issues facing women. Emily and Abby, um, specifically, one of the issues that's facing women that I think people uh, read a lot about is the gender gap in the workplace. 
Um, what are the trends you're seeing with regard to that? And how does that affect women's financial behavior? So what we're seeing um, at United Capital is that younger women tend to have less of a wage gap with men than women who are older, becoming middle-aged, et cetera, who've been in the workforce longer. Um, there is a definite bias um, on the part of employers when women have their first child and certainly their second, they start to fall behind and have a wider wage gap with their male counterparts. And sometimes that's because the women choose to either work part-time, slow down, work from home, whatever the case may be, you know, opt for less pay in exchange for more flexibility. Um, and it's not always less pay. Some organizations are very progressive and don't, um, you know, don't have that differential. But when men have their first child, they tend to actually get a promotion or a bump in pay. They're seen as more responsible. And when women have their first child, they're seen as, you know, their attentions are drawn elsewhere. And there's just a tendency not to give them um, as many raises and promotions. Now, I'm not saying that's our tendency at my firm. Um, I've given promotions to women who are pregnant um, because I went through those phases myself when building up my own career. But I think the general bias is, um, you know, that it's women have to prove themselves more that they're really dedicated to their employer, which is why so many women go out and start their own businesses so they can, you know, have control over their own destinies. Um, but as, as we know, the national average of the pay gap is about 72 cents on the dollar. It's worse for women of color and minorities uh, than it is for Caucasian women. Um, and it's, it really hasn't changed much in the past 30 years. It's gotten a little better, um, but really, you know, it's, we're not like Sweden or Germany or countries that are, you know, uh, legally very egalitarian. Do you find that uh, women have different behaviors with regard to investing as well? I mean, obviously, they may have a, a smaller pot of money to invest if they're not being paid as much. But what about their investing behavior? Yes. So, so women, um, as a generality, tend to be more conservative. They don't trade as much or as often. Men tend to turn over the holdings in their account uh, quicker than women. And um, it's been shown over time that you know, less turnover does lead to a better performance. Um, so women can actually have better investment performance than men. So but, so are, are women more conservative or are they more rational? <laughs> <laughs> I think that men view their investments as a scorecard. Women view their investments as enabling them to achieve some goal in their life or experience for them and their family. So, so they don't see They're more, more goal-oriented. They don't see it as winning and losing so much. No, men are much more competitive when it comes to their investments and want to hit a certain number. And I think that's what leads them to more frequent trading and, and looking for the you know next best idea. Yeah, I say that only because I think we give the wrong impression about <laughs> women investors as being conservative in, in a negative way as opposed to a sort of... Um, following a, a plan and sticking to a plan as opposed to men who, who do tend to see investing as a, a game of winning and losing. Well, that's true. And women are also open to coaching and advice when they come to a financial planner. You know, they really want to gain that knowledge and then build a plan for themselves that's outcomes-based. So, so women take advice better than men too. I, I believe <laughs> as a generality, that is not always the case. But um, if they definitely make the decision to seek out 
you know, that investment counseling, they tend to, you know, follow it. Abby, do you find that there's a difference in behavior when it comes to men and women uh, in estate planning? I think just the motivation behind the planning uh, is often different. And, you know, just speaking to what Emily was mentioning before really has to do with caretaking. And in this country, about three quarters of the caretakers are actually women who do about 50% more in the way of caretaking than their male counterparts. When we talk about caretaking, it's not just small children. It also has to do with caring for elderly parents, caring for relatives uh, with special needs. Something that women are constantly keeping in mind when they're coming in to do their estate plan and probably their financial planning as well is they're keeping in mind not only their own financial health, but the financial health of those that they're caring for And it's sort of like when you go on an airplane and the flight attendant says to you, um, they do their speech and they say, if the oxygen masks fall, you have to put on your own oxygen mask first because you don't really want to asphyxiate before you can help the person next to you put their oxygen mask on. And the same should be true with your planning. And so what happens with women is a lot of times as caretakers, we're so concerned with caring for those that we do care for that we are more concerned with their financial help and providing for them than we are for ourselves. I find that when women come in to do estate planning, oftentimes their primary concern is making sure that those they care for uh, will continue to be cared for following their own demise. But uh, with regard to the men, of course, they have these concerns. If they have children in particular, they are concerned about it. Um, But I find that a lot of the uh, tax-motivated discussions are started by men more than women in in those meetings. Do you find that women more often serve as a healthcare power of attorney or financial uh, agent under a power of attorney than men do? Uh, Interesting that you ask that. Um, I find that oftentimes parents will name adult male son, obviously sons are male, they'll name their sons. Um, to make financial decisions for them in the event that something should happen in the event of incapacity. And they'll name their daughters to make healthcare decisions for them in the event of incapacity. Just think that that speaks to the traditional roles of men making financial decisions and women maybe um, adding some heart into a decision that has to be made. Is, is that changing with the generations? I mean, the, the, the elderly parents are obviously much older than the the younger clients you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a generational difference or is it continuing through, uh, through the ages? I think somewhat it continues, although in a lot of families that have more than one child, there tends to be the one child who's the more responsible child or the better decision-making child. And, you know, in those families where there is that just sort of clear choice, they tend to go with whoever that child is, regardless of gender. Um, but I do think that those traditional male-female roles of finances and healthcare matters do carry on a bit throughout the generations. What What about um, in uh, charitable giving? Do you find a difference between men and women in that area? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, women actually are the driving force behind 90% of charitable giving in this country. Really? 90%. And, and so... Oftentimes that involves just being the one to start the charitable discussion for the couple, but sometimes that really involves decisions with regard to um, how much will be gifted, in what form, 
they'll they'll be the ones to be actively engaged in the charitable discussions in my office. And so when we're talking about foundations or donor-advised funds or charitable lead trusts or remainder trusts or all kinds of charitable vehicles, women tend to get very excited about that idea. And you're seeing the same mm-hmm. thing, Emily? Yes. Although in our firm, men and women really like to give and particularly appreciated securities um, that are held more than a year are a very popular donation vehicle for, as Abby said, donor-advised funds or uh, charitable foundations. And, and both men and women get excited about that when they learn of you know, the double tax benefits of that kind of uh, donation. What are some, um, Emily, what are some typical scenarios that, that you see when women come into your office? I mean, for instance, a, an older woman who's at retirement age or close to retirement age, what are the typical issues that she may bring to you looking for advice? Well, it, it depends on whether she's coming in, you know, alone or with her husband. But, you know, there are different concerns at different ages. So sort of working backwards, you know, the 20 and 30-somethings, and we usually start, um, we actually start working with the children of clients when they're in their teens to really get them uh, financially literate and to be good stewards of their money. But um, the younger people, you know, start becoming concerned about, oh, I have a job, getting my first mortgage, I need some life insurance, um, you know, very basic things like that. How do I start saving for my 401k? Um, and then as, as the um, person gets older, you know, their interests shift. So when there are kids in school, very big focus on education, either private school or college education. How do I save and pay for that in the best manner? Um, then once the children are all educated and out of the house, there is um, a very big interest in passive income. And, you know, when I retire, will I have enough to last my lifetime? Because when we do financial modeling for clients, we assume they live until age 95, you know, particularly women, and they could be um, retired, fully retired for 30 years. And how do they make their nest egg last? And typically women have a smaller nest egg than men because you know, they, because of that wage gender gap, and they don't necessarily consciously save as much toward their retirement. They may have lower social security because, you know, they haven't been working as long or earning as much. So the, the, the interest shift, um, particularly when women see, see their elderly parents um, become disabled, they, and they help care for them, they say, oh, maybe I should have long-term care insurance. And because I don't want to be a burden to my children. And so, you know, the interests shift, but, um, you know, throughout the ages, they're, um, they should always have a plan and a, a budget, if you want to use that word, and just know, you know, track their spending. You can do that through many different apps that are free on, on one's phone. Do you find that uh, um, your women clients are recognizing that they themselves were less financially savvy, and so they're taking a greater interest in making sure that their daughters are more financially aware? Yes. Um, it, clients are very, very grateful when they, we help their young adult children. You know, sometimes, again, starting as young as teenagehood, but definitely in the college years, newly graduated from college, um, many parents you know, encourage us to communicate directly with their children so that the children feel ownership of that process and children come in and meet with us. And, you know, we're very, very happy to see the younger generation because 
there's all kinds of things that go on now with um, identity theft and student loans and, you know, uh, credit cards being handed out like candy on college campuses. And it's, it's whether the child is like a young adult or if it's an 85-year-old widowed mom, we have found that people take advice better from a um, neutral third party than they do from their own parents or children or whatever that always seems to happen. One of the things that Adam and I see a lot in our practice um, is that family disputes can arise if uh, parents haven't been open with their children about what the estate plan is going to be, or maybe a little bit about what their finances are. Um, So Abby, do you see any difference in the way that women communicate some of that information to their children compared to how men communicate that kind of information to their children? I think women generally are more averse to conflict. Uh, That's not always true, of course, but we always encourage our clients to be as open as they feel comfortable being with their children currently in order to sort of prevent conflict in the future. And this is such a personal thing. Some people take sort of the traditional viewpoint of, you know what, my kids don't know what I have and they're not going to know until I pass away and that's how it is. And, you know, you have to respect that if that's how they feel, if they feel strongly about it. But for those who are open to suggestion and to my saying, hey, you know, you don't have to get into very specific details, but to give your kids at least the broad strokes of how things are going to work after you pass away really can help to keep things maybe more harmonious down the, down the road. And I think women are very receptive to that advice and generally want to do that. I would say the majority of couples uh, try to provide equally for their children after they pass in their estate plans. The vision we have of, you know, um, the cleavers and everyone singing songs and holding hands and being happy, that's really the exception these days. Um, It's not the rule. Uh, Generally in a family, there is um, a child who has issues or um, some family member that can't be trusted. And so the estate plans aren't exactly vanilla anymore. And when you have an estate plan in particular that's not vanilla, it's pretty important to uh, at least convey the broad strokes to those people that can be trusted so that they know what might be coming down the road and to plan for any potential conflicts in the terms of the documents. Do you find that uh, women more than men are uh, want to tailor their estate plans to account for uh, maybe the child who has some issues or the child who can't be trusted? Um, sure. Or do you not find a difference in the way men and women approach those kinds of problems, family problems? Well, um, I think a lot of the couples that come in are generally united on their approach towards how they want to work uh, to deal with whatever the problem may be. Sometimes it's uh, dealing with a child that's bad with money. Sometimes it's dealing with a family member that has uh, drug or alcohol issues. Sometimes one of your children has married someone that you really just don't like or trust and you want to prevent any sort of uh, issue that can arise with rela- uh, that as relates to that. Uh, and there's many sort of arrows in our quiver that we can use in the estate planning world to uh, plan for these things. But to answer your question, I do think that couples tend to be united in how they want to approach it. Okay, so so uh, when clients come to you, when women come to you, 
uh, either for planning, uh, financial planning or estate planning? What, what do they need to know before they come in? What sort of information should they be aware of about their own finances? We have what's called a uh, financial guidance survey, and it's similar to when you go to a new doctor for the first time and you have to fill out your medical history. Um, this is just a simple two-page document. We can um, have them fill it out in Excel, and it um, lists all their assets and liabilities and what their you know, goals are for the future. Do they have a will, trust, estate plan? Um, do they want to leave money to charity, you know, et cetera? It's sort of the basic information. And um, so it includes retirement plans, you know, retirement plans, who the beneficiaries are, or if there yes, are any benefits, social securities, you know, social security, titling of assets, some of the things that Abby alluded to earlier. You know, there's really no one way that people fill this out. Sometimes um, the woman fills it out, sometimes the man does. It's whoever is really the financial CFO of the family and has more of the data at their fingertips. But we're always uh, very careful to share the information with both members of the couple, always look um, the female partner in the eye and um, let her know that she's important and um, you know just use it as a teaching moment if she hadn't really been completely up to speed on what the family finances are. Do you find that women sometimes come in, women who are single, for, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they're widowed, they're divorced, uh, they just are single. Um, do you find that they sometimes don't have this financial information at their fingertips? They, they usually do um, if they're single mm-hmm. because everything rides on them. So um, in their case, it's usually more, um, I know what my information is, but I don't really know how everything fits together, you know, in terms of um, future growth or risk management. So I know where I am today, but I really have no idea, you know, where I'm going in the future. And so um, we help them you know, see how the different assets interplay with each other and what, you know, with what their needs are in the future for their life. And, and when you say we help them see how different assets interplay with each other, give me an example specifically of, of what you mean by that. Well, um, sometimes, you know, they may have an over-concentration of one security. If they, let's say, worked for a certain company and loaded up on the stock of that company, um, they may be overly exposed. They may have inherited some assets. They may be too conservative and, you know, have a lot in bonds and not a lot in stocks that can be a future growth engine for their portfolio. Um, Their insurance profile may be, you know, not very good. There's, There's all kinds of things. Maybe all their stocks are domestic and they don't have any international exposure whatsoever. And, and really, some of the uh, foreign countries' businesses and uh, companies are growing faster than here in the United States. So we just let them know what's available, and, and then they make the decision. And um, we have an assessment tool called the Investment Viewfinder, where they can you know, help us see and them see what their tolerance uh, you know, limits are for certain types of investing. And then we craft a portfolio that suits them. Other different steps that different women at different ages take when they see you? I mean, you're obviously seeing women who are in their 20s and 30s and women in their 50s and 60s. I mean, how, how did... And 80s and 90s. <laughs> and 80s and 90s. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, so how does the advice you're giving uh, differ depending on the ages of the clients that you're seeing? It's really what I always keep top of mind is... is it, and this goes really for any business, not just um, financial advising, is to be respectful. When women don't have 
like a complete body of knowledge and maybe have been making decisions that are not in their best interest, just making them aware in a respectful manner and not making them feel bad for decisions that they may have made in the past that were ill-advised. Just being a, being a good, uh, you know, guide and consultant. Do you, do you have advice? You, you've mentioned that women um, take advice um, from you and, and are open to that. And you've mentioned that as well, Abby. So I'd like to ask both of you if you have advice on how women can find financial planners or investment managers or estate planners. What's your, what's your best uh, guidelines for looking for so a guru to lead them through the path? <laughs> well, nowadays, so much is done online. You know, people often start with web search, um, although it's not at this point necessary to have an advisor in your neighborhood because people do so many meetings um, via screen share and interactively. You don't actually have to sit in the same room unless you um, really love to have that in-person touch. But people often turn to friends, family members, you know, who have you used, who do you like? And then um, there are some blogs that are very good that give information about, um, you know, just day-to-day issues that come up in women's financial planning. Uh, One of them is called dailyworth.com, and it is a daily newsletter, um, very catchily written. Um, I think it definitely slants more toward a younger woman in her 30s because um, the founder of that particular company, Amanda Steinberg, is in her late 30s, but it can really go for anybody. And um, there are also, you know, books that you can read, like, for example, The Money Queen's Guide for Women Who Want to Build Wealth and Banish Fear. Um, This is a very quick read. You can read it on the plane. And it's by my friend and colleague, Carrie Carbonaro. Um, There's also The Money Code that um, I co-authored with Joe Duran. You know, it's just a place to get started you know, look at the Wall Street Journal um, in terms of, you know, the online version or the New York Times business section. But um, people usually start with their friends and social media. Nowadays, so many uh, recommendations are made on social media. What about you, Abby? Same advice, different advice? Yeah, I agree with Emily. I mean, I'm sort of traditional in that if I want to go seek out the services of a professional, I want to know that people whose judgment I respect um, have already worked with this professional, have had a good experience. The other thing is that, um, you know, there are tons and tons of uh, speeches and seminars and lunch and learns now dedicated to informing women about their financial health, uh, planning for their estates. And these seminars are eager to have, uh, the people who organize them are eager to have lots of women attend. And so, Women should know that there are tons of these seminars out there, and if they're interested in attending, they happen to hear a good speaker, maybe on basics of estate planning or financial planning, that might be someone worth following up with because so much of what we do involves um, a really personal connection with our clients. And so you want to be able to work with someone that you feel comfortable with, and if you witness them speak, or if a friend has given a referral based on the fact that they just enjoyed working with them, I think that speaks volumes. A lot of those programs just for women? There are a ton like, just no, for no, women. No, no men allowed? I, <laughs> no, <laughs> Maybe I, you, I, Adam. <laughs> but, but no. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, back in, uh, you know, in, in grade school where, where 
uh, they found that you know, same-sex classes tended to encourage women to talk in situations where they might otherwise be uncomfortable talking. And I wonder if the same is true in, in financial-type uh, 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 classes and, and whatnot. Yeah, so um, the seminars that I get invited to speak at, I find that w- what's happening is people realize that women now- nowadays have a thirst for knowledge and they want them to feel that they are in an environment where they can feel free to ask questions without feeling ridiculous. Um, and so they'll put on like a, a ladies lunch sort of uh, event or maybe an afternoon tea or something like that and have a topic related to being a woman and finances, whether it's uh, being newly single, whether it's divorced or widowed, whether it's uh, single women uh, feeling empowered about their finances, whether it's, you know, are your loved ones taken care of? There's a variety of topics that women really want to know about. And so, yes, to answer your question, um, of course, there's no sign up that says no men allowed, but, uh, but it is generally provided uh, as an atmosphere to make women feel comfortable. And are there seminars like this, you think, for all age groups or yes. are they mostly... They're not mostly geared toward older women. No, I would say it's for all age groups. Um, The ones that I've been to, um, I think the trend in age tends to be anywhere between 40s and 60s. Uh, However, I have been to some where there are women in their 30s that are attending um, with a view toward planning for the future. I'm going to ask each of you now a really hard question. What is the single most important piece of advice you would give to women about planning for their financial futures? We'll start with you, Emily. Well, it's something that Abby mentioned previously. Don't be intimidated. Um, There's a lot of, you know, talking heads out there in the media, a lot of jargon. I I think we are now talking heads in the media. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, And don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, Seek out a professional in, you know, whatever area you would like to start in. I mean, normally it's good to just have a solid plan for the future and uh, know where you stand and, uh, you know, just build, build up your knowledge so that um, when, you, when you do have to manage on your own, whether it's today or, you know, 40 years from now, you'll be well prepared. What about you, Abby? Yeah, I mean, I would say the same knowledge is power, right? And even if you have a full understanding of what your finances are, what your estate plan is right now, you should make sure that not only do you stay on top of that, but that you're working with professionals who are on top of that. You should make sure that your professionals are keeping you up to date on updates, uh, whether it's with the law or with anything financial that relates to you. But you should be on top of that. You should make sure that you're constantly asking the right questions. And if you're not getting the kind of advice or the detail that you uh, are requesting or desiring from your professionals, then perhaps it's time to move on and find other ones that can better assist your needs. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, we appreciate having both of you here, Abby Flom and Emily Sanders. Um, and before we go, I'd like to ask each of you to provide our listeners with your contact information, website or your phone numbers, so that our listeners will know how to get in touch with you. Let's start with you, Emily. Sure. Our website is unitedcapitalatlanta.com. Uh, excuse me, unitedcpatlanta.com. And my Twitter handle is at Emily C. Sand, 
and our Facebook page is United Capital Financial Advisors Atlanta. Abby? Okay. Um, our website is www.cpmas, so Cat Paul Mary Allen Sam.com. And I am not as technologically savvy as Emily, so I do have a Twitter handle, but uh, don't ask me to tweet. My phone number is 770-858-1288. As we're wrapping up our show today, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaston with Franklin, please go to our website at gastonwithfranklin.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Emily Sanders, CPA and Managing Director of United Capital, and Abby Flom, attorney and partner with Cohen, Pollock, Merlin, and Small. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.